Hello and welcome to episode 193 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today is the second and concluding part of our story from last week about the Balkan Street Gang. Thank you for the messages, firstly, about the Mighty League United being champions this year. I thought I'd mention it here just in case you missed it. As any followers of sports teams know, we have to enjoy the few glorious moments as they don't come around too often. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Robin Campbell, Claire Wright, Mary Talbot, Pamela Murphy, Yali, and Harriet Sykes, who's increased her support. Thank you all so much, it is much appreciated. And I hope you are watching this live episode recording on YouTube, all my Patreon supporters. We do it every month. I'm delighted that this episode is sponsored by Wooga, the creator of June's Journey. Have you played it yet? Released almost three years ago, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game set in the 1920s, with over 3 million active fans all around the world, including me. I love it as a game, as it's challenging but relaxing, and I love the beautiful, colourful detail of it. Each of the scenes you can see has been handcrafted. If, like me, you really enjoy the style of the 1920s, you'll love it. And even if not, the detective in you will not be able to stop playing as you take the role of June who returns to her family's estate only to find her sister murdered, leading to a global quest to solve the crime. This is a free-to-download mobile game available for free on mobile devices and on desktop through Amazon and Facebook. Come and join me and all the other players today. Download June's Journey for free from the App Store or Google Play or by clicking the link in the show notes for this episode. Let's set some context by taking a look at the music we were listening to at the event that starts this week's episode. David Essex was at number one with Gonna Make You a Star, keeping Queen with Killer Queen from the top spot. In the US, it was Smashy and Nicey's fave, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, from Backman Turner Overdrive. In Australia, the top-selling album this year was Band on the Run from Paul McCartney and Wings. In the news this month, Ted Bundy victim Debbie Kent disappeared in Salt Lake City, Utah. ABBA began their first tour of Europe, their first tour outside of Sweden. Cricket legends Gordon Greenwich and Viv Richards made their test debuts. Over 130 people died when a suspension bridge collapsed in Nepal. And McDonald's opened their first UK restaurant in Woolwich, South East London. In UK true crime news, British peer the Earl of Lucan disappeared and was never seen again after his nanny was found murdered in London. Rumours that he hosted a primetime show on Channel 5 were never fully confirmed. Did you get the month and year? It was November 1974. Last week we began the story of the IRA Active Service Unit, who later became known as the Balkham Street Gang, who began arriving in England in August 1974. We looked at the terrible murder of Ross McWhirter in November 1975, weeks after he offered a reward for information leading to the conviction of the IRA gang. And we covered the terrible bombings of two pubs in Guildford, where five young people lost their lives when just enjoying a night out. They then followed a series of attacks using hand bombs aimed at service clubs in London, and the establishment club Brooks, which was based in the West End of London. 
thankfully with no loss of lives. But the next attack would see lives lost. The Royal Artillery Barracks at Woolwich in the Royal Borough of Greenwich, South East London, was the home of the Royal Artillery from 1776 until 2007. Few of us can forget, or indeed want to forget, the horrific and cowardly murder of drummer Lee Rigby in 2013, as he was murdered by extremists just outside the barracks in a terrorist attack. And it was Woolwich that was the next target for the Borkham Street gang, a pub close to the barracks, the King's Arms. 42-year-old Richard Dunn, who is married to Brenda, was seeing out his military career as a mess waiter in Woolwich. A friendly, easy-going man who was never known to have a bad word to say about anybody. He was a regular in the King's Arms. He was in the pub on the evening of the 7th of November, as was 20-year-old civilian Alan Horsley. Alan was a married sales clerk, one of five siblings who had grown up in nearby Broccoli. Fred Horsland, a former army man, who lost part of one leg and his hearing in one ear in the bombing we're about to describe, was playing darts with Alan and another man that evening when the Borkhamstreet Street gang threw the bomb through the window of the pub and he later told the BBC what had happened from his perspective. I quote, There was a tinkling noise. I looked up and saw a hole in the window. I saw this smoking thing on the floor. I had to go past it. It was the only way out. I had my hands on the door and then I was on my knees and still holding the door but the door was on top of me. The lights were all out. What happened behind me? I had no idea. He spoke of how Alan Horsland, a regular at the pub, although a civilian, was a good pal, adding, We all envied his looks. He was quite stylish, and for some reason he seemed to enjoy playing darts and chatting to people, as well as going out with girls. He was sort of shy and not pushy. He was just a nice lad. The sort of person you'd be happy to have as your younger brother. He used to get teased mercilessly, but he just laughed. He had a nice life, a good life in front of him. The bomb, made of six pounds of gelatine, with the addition of shrapnel, that evening murdered Richard Dunn and Alan Horsley, and injured 28 other innocent people, including the landlady of the King's Arms, Margaret Nash. As we spoke about in the last episode, Under pressure, the police forced confessions out of innocent people whose lives were ruined by being falsely imprisoned for this crime. Two members of the so-called Guildford Four, Paddy Armstrong and Paul Hill, were jailed in October 1975 for the Woolwich bomb and the bombings in Guildford, but those convictions were declared unsafe in 1989. Alan Horsley and Richard Dunn's names are on a memorial of brass plaques in St George's Chapel, Woolwich, and they are also commemorated in a Book of Remembrance in Woolwich Town Hall. As for the pub itself, it's now about to be demolished to make way for flats, but the new King's Arm is promised on the ground floor. One has stood on this site since the early 19th century. Just four days later, the gang killed again, this time in what at the time was thought to be a suspected case of mistaken identity. It was insurance broker Alan Quartermain who was shot by an unknown man at the junction of Kings Road and Beaufort Street in Chelsea. In further attacks in 1974, the gang used postboxes to hide bombs in key locations and attacked pubs and clubs. In 
fortunately, with no loss of life until the 17th of December 1974, when the gang attacked telephone exchanges in London with three time bombs. The first bomb went off at a GPO telephone exchange at New Compton Street in Soho, with the second exploding at an exchange near Tottenham Court Road, killing 34-year-old post office telephonist George Arthur. The third bomb injured four people in Chelsea. And just two days after this, the gang again changed their method of attack. This time they targeted Selfridge's department store with a massive £100 of high explosives in a car, the biggest car bomb used by the IRA to date, and it caused £1.5 million worth of damage, although thankfully no one was killed. More attacks continued, with no loss of life until the 26th of February 1975, when four unarmed Plain Cove police officers were operating in Hammersmith, West London, as there had been a number of burglaries in the area. When one of the officers saw a man acting suspiciously, looking around somewhat furtively before he entered a flat in Fairhome Road, one of the Plain Cove policemen identified himself as a police officer and asked the man to empty his pockets. He didn't realise that the man he had stopped was Liam Quinn, a member of the Balkham Street gang who had replaced Brendan Dowd. Quinn was originally from San Francisco, although you'd never have guessed it from his Irish accent. In his pockets were a large amount of Irish money, which was suspicious for the police officer, so he asked him to escort him to the nearest police station. On hearing that, Quinn made a break for it, and as he was pursued by the officers, they heard a motorbike behind them. It was off-duty officer Stephen Tibble, just 21, married, and a newcomer to the force, only having been an officer for six months. Stephen pursued Quinn, and when he went past him, he stopped and dismounted at the junction of Charleville Road and Gledstones Road, where he crouched and spread out his arms to catch the suspect. But as he did so, time stood still. Quinn calmly pulled out a Colt revolver, and shot Stephen Tibble twice in the chest at point-blank range before escaping through the ground floor of a tower block off the Torgart Road. Stephen Tibble was terribly injured, and a couple of hours later at Charing Cross Hospital, with his wife at his side, he died, just 21 years old. Detectives examined the flat in Fairhome Road that Quinn had been seen entering, and discovered it was in fact a bomb-making factory. There was Irish and English money, guns, ammunition, and terrifyingly, enough bomb-making equipment to produce half a dozen high-explosive bombs. There were also a number of wigs and a letter addressed to Joe O'Connell, another IRA volunteer. On questioning, the landlord told police that the flat was rented by a man known as Michael Wilson. Quinn managed to escape back to the US and he desperately fought extradition to England to face justice. But to no avail. He was brought back, and in 1988, he was convicted of the murder of Stephen Tibble, with the judge telling him, You shot repeatedly and at point-blank range a man who was in fact a police officer, although you could not have known that he was other than an ordinary member of the public. After his death, Stephen was awarded the Queen's Police Medal for Gallantry and a memorial was erected at the spot where he was killed on Charville Road in Barons Court, West London. 
Four more bombs were planted by the gang in August 1975, with one killing Met Police bomb disposal officer Roger Goad. The 40-year-old father of two had been awarded the British Empire Medal in 1958 for gallantry while serving in Cyprus, where on numerous occasions he had shown great courage disarming bombs and booby traps. He rose through the ranks to captain before leaving the army in 1974 and joining the Met Police as an explosive officer. Roger was the senior explosives officer on the scene and the bomb exploded, killing him instantly. Roger Goad was later awarded the George Cross for the heroism he displayed. The very next day, the gang planted a time bomb outside the NatWest Bank in High Holborn in London. Nobody was injured in that explosion. But on the 5th of September, the gang left another time bomb at the Hilton Hotel in Park Lane. At 11.55am, they called a warning through to the Daily Mail newspaper, saying that the bomb would explode within 10 minutes, and although Scotland Yard were informed and officers were sent to the scene, at 12.18, the bomb exploded in the lobby area. It was a scene of complete horror. A Met Police officer responding to the incident later recalled the following, and I quote, Persons with both lower limbs blown off, another man who had lost his leg from the knee downward, another already dead, and others unable to move. Two people were killed in the blast. One, Robert Anthony Lloyd, was a married father of two who worked as a casino manager in the West End. The other was 39-year-old Dutch tour operator, Grace Lodhui. 63 more people were injured in the explosion, many seriously with life-changing injuries. And the string of attacks continued in September, with a car bomb exploding in a pub in Kent, another bomb in Surrey, and a further bomb in Oxford Street, which injured seven people. And then at 9pm on the 9th of October 1975, the gang threw a bomb at a bus stop just outside Green Park Underground Station. As it exploded, the force of this blast was so ferocious, it lifted people right off their feet, it smashed shop windows on the other side of the road, and it blew cars from the road to the pavement. The flying glass led to over 20 injuries, including two children. One homeless man, 23-year-old Graham Ronald Tuck, died of a heart attack after suffering severe head and chest injuries in the bomb. It later transpired that the target of the attack hadn't been Green Park Station, it had actually been the Ritz Hotel. But the gang member placing the bomb became concerned about security at the hotel, and so he carried it into the toilets at Green Park Station, where he defused it and waited for a while. As he started to prime the bomb, he said, Some guy in the next toilet looked over the toilet to see what I was doing. He was a total stranger. I thought he'd see me, so I ran out threw it down at the bus stop and ran off. The bomb maker said that the detonator was pulled out and the bomb should never have exploded. The Ritz still took a big hit from the bomb blast and no lives were lost purely as the main restaurant was empty in preparation for a wedding later that day. One guest, Al Gunther and his family from Cleveland, Ohio, were drinking their coffee when the blast shattered glass and dust around them. Mr. Gwenther said, The last time I stayed at the Ritz, the V2s were coming over. It doesn't seem to have changed. 
Three days later, the terrorists struck again, leaving a bomb at Lockett's restaurant in Marsham Street, Westminster, a place known to attract a number of conservative politicians, but it was defused. Days later, the gang attacked again. This time it was a car bomb, which was placed under the car of an MP, Sir Hugh Fraser. Quite why they left it under his car, in Kensington, isn't known. Walking past the car at the time of the explosion was cancer expert, 45-year-old Gordon Hamilton Fairley. He was killed instantly when the bomb exploded. What terrible luck is that, to be there at the very moment of the explosion? When he died, Gordon was married with four children, the youngest of whom was 12 years old. He was at the very height of his career when he was murdered, having recently been offered an appointment as the Queen's personal doctor, which he turned down as he preferred to work with the public. I've seen the question posed, if he had survived, who knows how many people who have since died of cancer could potentially have been saved through his brilliance? Although that question is up for discussion, one thing that isn't is his personal qualities and how he made people feel. One friend summarised very well what others felt in the following words. Gordon always generated excitement and when you were with him he made you feel clever, confident, better than you really were. His friends will remember his involvement with them and the warmth and the hospitality of the Fairley family and that in spite of an often incredibly busy and hectic schedule, he found time to seek them out during his travels. He brought a feeling of excitement and importance to whatever he did, whether it was sailing his boat or attending a medical conference and to whoever he met. Gordon's life is remembered by a blue plaque in the crypt of St Paul's Cathedral, which reads, Gordon Hamilton Fairley, DM, FRCP, First Professor of Medical Oncology, 1930-1975, killed by a terrorist bomb. It matters not how a man dies, but how he lives. An award at St Bartholomew's Hospital was also named after him. In November, another MP was targeted with a booby-trapped car bomb, which was incorrectly placed under the car of his neighbour, who survived his injuries. And it was the next day that, as we covered in last week's episode, Ross McWhirter offered a £50,000 reward for the capture of the terrorists who were causing so much terror, injury and death. As we heard, this news conference would cost him his life. Days later, a bomb was defused outside the house of ex-Prime Minister Edward Heath. He wasn't at home at the time. And on the 12th of November, at about 9pm, a similar bomb to the one that had been used at Woolwich was thrown into Scott's restaurant, located in the heart of the West End in Mayfair. Around 70 people were inside the restaurant, and at least 15 people were badly injured. And one man... 59-year-old married businessman John Beatty was killed. John lived in Hyde Dipton, Corbridge, Northumberland, but was a native of Tyneside. Since 1959, he'd been the managing director of Tyne Tugs Limited. One diner later described seeing a figure make an underarm lob before the window shattered. He said, Conversation suddenly ceased and I heard a fizzing sound. I stood up and there appeared to be a blue flame or light around the area. I turned to my left, put my hands up in an attempt to protect my face. There was an explosion, then a pause, and the curtains and drapes caught fire. 
Six days later, the gang targeted another West End restaurant, Walton's in Chelsea. It was approaching 10 to 10pm when a bomb was again thrown through the window, killing two civilians, 45-year-old Audrey Edgerton and 49-year-old Theodore Williams, with 23 others injured. The bomb was the most horrendous contraption, with mini-ball bearings used purely to maximise the number of injuries. A senior Scotland Yard official said that the bomb used in the attack had been a shrapnel-like device containing three pounds of explosives. Audrey Edgerton had been celebrating her husband's birthday at the restaurant. A man who was with them said, There was a sound of breaking glass and something hit our table and knocked over the lamp which was on the table. At that moment, someone, I think Mrs Edgerton, said, My God, it's a bomb. Then it rolled on the floor and exploded. Audrey was from Radnor Place in the Paddington area of West London. The force of the explosion collapsed both her lungs, which killed her. Her husband suffered severe stomach injuries. And Theodore Williams was the head of a Hatton Garden jewellery manufacturing firm. He died from a wound to the heart, and he was from Sussex Lodge, Sussex Place in Paddington. And it was nine days later that the Balkham Street gang carried out their last murder, when on the 27th of November, they shot Ross McWhirter dead on the doorstep of his home in North London, an attack I covered in much more detail in part one of this story last week. The Met's bomb squad had analysed the activity of this active service unit and noted that they attacked the same targets more than once, and so plainclothes detectives were out in force on the streets of the West End, waiting for the gang to strike again. And on the 6th of December, this tactic paid dividends, as the gang was spotted as their stolen Cortina slowed down outside Scott's restaurant, and the terrorists fired shots at the diners. Luckily, nobody was killed. Two officers on foot heard that this attack was taking place near where they were located in Mount Street. So, being on foot, they had to hail a taxi, and they followed the IRA gang through the streets of London until the terrorists abandoned the car. The brave officers continued their pursuit, despite coming under fire, as the gang headed into a block of council flats in Balkham Street, close to Marylebone Station. The four men went to 22B Balkham Street, where they took middle-aged married couple John and Sheila Matthews hostage in their front room. The place was soon surrounded and the local area cordoned off as the gang demanded money and a plane to fly themselves and their hostages to Ireland. The Met negotiators refused. The siege lasted for six days, followed by a tense public. In the end, the gang surrendered, some believe due to clever tactics from the Met who knew that the gang had a radio, and so used the media to feed information to destabilise the terrorists. And it was when the terrorists heard the planted story on the BBC Radio News that the SAS were about to storm the building, that they gave themselves up, and the hostages were released unharmed. So who were the four men captured? Harry Duggan was one of four children born in Kilburn, North London before returning to County Clare with the family when he was three. He left school at 14 and became a carpenter in a local factory, before becoming involved with Sinn Féin at the start of the Troubles. In 1972, his family was told he was killed in action and had been buried secretly. 
but it was during the Balkan Street siege that fingerprints showed he was in fact alive. His dad, who said he had not heard from his son for two years before the siege, described him as, I quote, a nice quiet boy at home who never gave us any trouble. Hugh Doherty was born in Glasgow, but his family came from County Donegal. After leaving school, he worked in various parts of Britain as a labourer on road building contracts. His brother Pat was vice president of Sinn Féin. Edward Butler was one of seven children who lived in a small cottage in Castle Connell, County Limerick, and he worked as a labourer for the council. He sold Republican newspapers outside his local church before leaving the area a year before the siege. His dad was formerly a private in the Defence Forces. And Martin Joseph O'Connell, known as Joe, lived with his parents in a small bungalow beside their farm in County Clare until 1974. His mum said after his arrest, I don't know how he got mixed up with such people. The men were tried at the Old Bailey and found guilty of seven murders, conspiring to cause explosions, and falsely imprisoning John and Sheena Matthews during the siege. Butler, Duggan and O'Connell each received 12 life sentences, and Doherty received 11. Each of the men was later given a whole life tariff, the only IRA prisoners to receive this. During the course of the trial, they instructed their lawyers to draw attention to the fact that four totally innocent people were serving massive sentences for three bombings in Woolwich and Guildford. Despite telling the police that they committed these crimes, they were never charged with these offences, and the Guildford Four and Maguire Seven remained in prison for 15 more long years until it was ruled that their convictions were unsafe. After serving 23 years in English prisons, they were moved to Northern Ireland in 1998. They were presented by Jerry Adams to the 1998 Sinn Féin conference as, and I quote, our Nelson Mandela's. And they were released together with Brendan Dowd and Liam Quinn in 1999 as part of the Good Friday Agreement. So what do you make of what we've heard these last two weeks? I must apologise firstly for not going into the depth that this story deserves. It could easily be a 20-part podcast series, but that is for someone with much more ability than me. Hopefully, if like me you weren't fully aware of some of the stories we've covered, you now have a greater idea of the terror felt in England during this time. Remember, this wasn't the only active service unit operating on the UK mainland at this time, and in 1974, there was an IRA attack on average every three days. 19 people were killed during the Balkan Street Gang's reign of terror, 16 from bombings and 3 from gun attacks. Six were British military personnel, one was a London police officer, one a member of the bomb squad, and 11 were civilians. The names of each one must never be forgotten. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspects of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group. And to support the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime, where you can watch me recording an episode every month. If that isn't living the dream, what is? In addition, we've got bonus episodes, tons of other exclusive content. That's patreon.com slash UK true crime. So I must get the jinx ready for Leeds United celebration of lifting the championship trophy tomorrow night. 
But that is all for me for now. So until we speak again next week, take it easy. And remember, despite all the others, please stay classy. Cheerio.